So this morning, we're anticipating a feast day in the church that hasn't happened yet, uh, but it's coming up this week. So save the date for Thursday, February 2, which is the feast of the presentation of Jesus at the temple, which is kind of a mouthful. So it's been nicknamed in many places simply Candlemas. We have Christmas, and then 40 days later is Candlemas. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Candlemas. Okay, more than at the nine, that's impressive. It's really a bigger deal in Europe and we'll see why here in a minute. So the name Candlemas comes from a very old tradition that's associated with this particular feast where people would bring their own candles from home and process into the church with them to commemorate Jesus' own procession into the temple as a baby. So the candles, of course, represent Jesus, the light of the world, uh, and the presence of God returning to the temple as Malachi prophesied, but who came first in the smallest, most singular way as an infant. And then during this candlemas service, all those candles from home would be blessed, and then they would be sent back out into the darkness of winter as a reminder of Christ's light going forth into the world, into our homes, to lighten our darkness until the return of spring. So Candlemas really uh, picked up in about the fifth century, and it was a sort of ancient festival of lights. So imagine being, you know, living in medieval Europe. It's cold, it's dark, it's February. This would be a big deal to celebrate the light that has come into the world. And seasonally, it also served an important purpose because it reminded people right here in the thick of winter of the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, that winter will end and spring will come again. I think even many of us by early February, even with our electricity lighting our homes and our you know, central heat, many of us appreciate that reminder. Winter will end. When I lived in New Jersey for college, I pretty much liked it. I liked the food, I liked the people, I liked the accents. Um, they liked my accent. And I liked the snow until about mid-February at which point I became very, very depressed. So we can see how a reminder like this, you know, could boost our morale as we just tuck in and wait a few more months for things to warm up. Now here in the US, we do still have a version of Candlemas. It has devolved significantly, uh, but we do have a day of observance to signal the end of winter that comes in early February. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Groundhog's Day which doesn't exactly carry the same ring of transcendence, does it? But the point is that throughout history, and even today, we start to get anxious as winter drags on. The cold and the dark do have an effect on us, and over time, we find ourselves grasping for evidence, any kind of evidence that the sun will come out again, even the evidence of a groundhog. Pray for those people who really rely on the groundhog. Now that's just a little bit of the historic and sort of cultural context for our feast. But now I want to turn to the story itself. When Jesus was presented at the temple, Israel was in the middle of a different kind of winter. For centuries by this point, God's people had been living under the weight of foreign rulers. They'd been grieving the departure of God's glory from their temple. And they'd had no prophets to give new voice, new hope, new interpretation to their situation. So we heard from Malachi a little bit earlier this morning. He was Israel's last prophet. And his ministry ended some 400 years 
before Jesus was born. And Malachi did promise that God would come and restore Israel, but 400 years takes its toll. That's a long time to wait. And so what we see is that in the unwanted waiting and the prolonged silence was taking its effect on God's people. Their spiritual winter was wearing them down and it was producing a variety of reactions. So some of the Jews had become jaded and they disbelieved that the Messiah would ever come. Others still believed in theory, but they distracted themselves with survival and safety under Rome. Others sought to take God's promises by force and overthrow Rome. And still others sought to collaborate with their oppressors and really capitalize on the situation for a more comfortable life in the meantime. And really all of these responses, I think, are understandable. In our own seasons of waiting, prolonged waiting, when we get tired of living with unanswered prayers and unfulfilled longings, it's natural to turn towards distraction or compromise or apathy because all of those things are easier than staying alive to the pain of an unfinished story. The proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. We don't wanna live that way very long. And all of that is what make Simeon and Anna so unusual. In this story about the light coming finally into the darkness of Israel's winter, when the Lord fulfills Malachi's prophecy and returns suddenly to his temple in the person of Jesus, exactly two people are able to recognize him, Simeon and Anna. Two people who have grown old waiting and yet who haven't given in to apathy or despair. We only get a tiny snapshot of their lives here in Luke's gospel but we know that Simeon was specifically waiting for the Messiah and that he was prepared to wait until the day he died. And Anna, she doesn't seem to have any expectation about seeing God's promises fulfilled, but she just wants to be in his presence. And I think especially Anna, who was widowed seven years into her marriage, which in that time wasn't just a personal tragedy, it was also an economic tragedy and a social tragedy especially Anna, could have begun to feel forgotten by God just based on her circumstances alone. And the truth is, we don't know exactly what she was fasting and praying for day and night in the temple, year after year. She was likely interceding for Israel, praying for her people, but she might also have been interceding for herself. The point is, we don't know all the contours of her prayers and to what extent she felt seen or heard by God. We do know that as a woman, she wasn't even allowed inside the actual temple itself, but she had to remain in one of the outer courts. And yet, we can't hear the words of Psalm 84 without hearing Anna's voice. Listen, even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself in your altars, O Lord. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Simeon and Anna spent their lives seeking God. And in the temple, God revealed himself to them in the flesh. He granted them the special privilege of seeing him with their own eyes before they died. They'd been waiting their whole lives and they would not see Jesus' work fulfilled in their lives. But by God's grace, 
their prolonged waiting was transformed into early access. Their faithfulness in the silence made them able to hear God's voice before anyone else did. They were able to hear him because in all the years of waiting, they hadn't stopped listening. Interestingly, even their names help us to understand this. In Hebrew, Simeon's name can be translated to hear. And Anna is the daughter of Phanuel, which means face of God. So they are the ones who hear God's voice and see his face. And I think their witness is both a challenge and an encouragement to us. Because on the one hand, they show us that God might ask us to wait for him a lot longer than we want to. But on the other hand, they show us that the life of prayer means learning to wait on God in the presence of God. Let me say that again. Prayer is waiting on God in the presence of God. And in a mysterious way, Simeon and Anna both knew God's presence. They knew his spirit, even while they were waiting for him to arrive in the person of Jesus. For them, God's silence was not the same as his absence. For them, even the waiting was infused with intimacy. Hebrews 11 says that God rewards those who seek him. Maybe what you need to hear this morning is that the reward begins now. It begins in the seeking. And if you are waiting on him to act, to speak, if you are waiting for God to answer the unresolved questions in your story, I challenge you to not lose heart. Do not believe the lie that you have been forgotten. Do not assume that any moment of your journey is being wasted. He will come and he is already with you. Now up to this point, most of my reflection has been on the nature of waiting and what Simeon and Anna teach us about how to do it. But now I want to turn to how God comes. When he breaks the silence of Israel's story and ours, what can we expect? And this little story gives us three pairs, three sets of and that reveal the nature of the light who comes to us in the person of Christ. And by three sets, I really mean, this is my way of sneaking six points into three. So get ready. Uh, we've looked at how to wait, and now we'll look at how he comes. First, when Jesus comes, he brings both solidarity and sacrifice. Solidarity and sacrifice. The story opens with Jesus being presented to the Lord in accordance with Jewish custom. His parents are following the rules. Verse 23, as it is written, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So on the face of this, Jesus is entering fully into Jewish life and experience. He's identifying with his people in their story, just as he will later in his baptism, to fulfill all righteousness. In the words of our Hebrews reading, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He was made like his brothers in every respect. So beginning with this seemingly small detail of being presented at the temple at 40 days old, Jesus was being made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, Jesus came to the Jews as a Jew. But this really even goes beyond his Jewishness. So think about this with me for a minute. In writing himself into the story as a human being, God comes to us in a totally unique way among all religions. 
God comes to us as one of us. This means that God, the one who is wholly other, wholly transcendent, wholly holy, can also be in solidarity with us in every aspect of our experience as humans. Early last year, a group, uh, an interdenominational group of Christians started a new initiative to introduce people to the biblical Jesus through diverse media. So they use videos and stories and billboard campaigns to emphasize Jesus' profound love and also his profound solidarity with human beings. It's called He Gets Us. And just to give you an example, one recent billboard read, Jesus was fed up with politics too. He gets us. Kind of resonates, doesn't it? And in a little less than a year, He Gets Us has had six and a half billion website hits, which I think is a lot, um, and has connected 45,000 people to 6,000 partner churches. So it's telling to see how drawn people are to the God who gets us, who is in solidarity with us, who has been made like us in every respect. But Jesus hasn't come merely to share and understand our experience. He has also come to fill the gaps of our experience. Listen to how Hebrews 2 continues. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Luke's presentation story, if you read it in conversation with Israel's long history, it has these kinds of priestly overtones. Specifically, it has echoes of another child who was presented to the temple, given over by his mother to the service of God uniquely to become Israel's priest, when Hannah gives Samuel. You see, in Israel's tradition, all the way back to the Exodus, God had special claim on every firstborn son. So um, we hear about this in verse 23 of Luke 2, um, that this firstborn was singularly devoted to God, but the custom was that families could redeem their sons, they could buy them back from priestly service with five shekels of silver. Now the only exception to this was the tribe of Levi, who became the sort of priestly class in Israel. So if you were a firstborn Levite son, you were gonna be a priest. Every other firstborn could be bought back out of temple service. Now Jesus is the tribe of Judah, so his parents theoretically would have redeemed him. They would have ceremonially bought him out of priestly service at this temple visit. But there's no mention of that in Luke's account. Instead, the emphasis is on him being presented, him being offered up into the presence of God at the temple. The emphasis is on Jesus' specialness, on the special role that he will fulfill on behalf of Israel. It makes us think again of Malachi's words. When the Lord comes to his temple, he will purify the sons of Levi. He will do the priestly work on behalf of the priests who had failed to offer right sacrifices to God. And of course, we know, based on how the story ends, that Jesus will ultimately become not only the priest, but also the offering. Jesus is himself the sacrifice that he offers up to God on our behalf. That's what the cross is all about. So in Jesus, we find solidarity. We find understanding and shared experience. But we also find sacrifice. 
Jesus meets us where we are, and then he does what we cannot do for ourselves. Second pair. When God comes, he comes for us and for others. I would be remiss if I didn't speak to this because this is one of the central themes of Epiphany, which is that the light of Christ is given to the Jews for the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus is here and he's for everybody. In verse 30, Simeon says this. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now this us and them thing took Jesus' disciples a little while to figure out because uh, their long history was about us as opposed to them. We are separate from them. Uh, The Jews wanted and needed to retain a sense of national identity and also of religious purity in contrast to the nations around them by remaining distinctly Jewish. But Jesus' ministry, as we know, broke down that wall of separation and made them one new people in himself. And then he reminded them that everything God had given to them, chiefly Christ himself, was given not for their private consumption, but for them to share with the world. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So you could say this is the true meaning of election. God chooses some, in this case Israel, or even by extension, the church, not for the exclusion of others, but for the blessing of others. Anglican Bishop Graham Tomlin explains it like this. Election is never for privilege, but always for blessing. The chosen are selected to be the divine means of bringing blessing to the whole of which they are a part. Now we don't have the same Jewish Gentile baggage uh, of the early church, but I do think we have some of the same tendencies that made it a problem. We can unwittingly operate from an us and them mentality that leads to contempt for others at worst or forgetfulness about others at best. And yet, as recipients and as stewards of God's light, we must always be asking the question, who else is this for? The answer to that question will look different for each one of us. The answer to that question will also look different for a church in West Greenville than it will for a church in upstate New York. But it's a question we all need to ask and keep asking. Who else is this for? Who else is our money for, our property for? Who else are our gifts and resources and emotional stability? Who else is our hope in God for? God comes for us and others. Last pair. When God comes, he brings consolation and crisis. Simeon, he's the one who's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. And he knows it when he sees it. Verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Jesus is here, the one whom Isaiah prophesied would comfort his people and restore their fortunes. This is all good. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And yet, even Simeon can see that this gift, this answer to their prayers, comes with its own surprises. He goes on in verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, 
so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon names Jesus as the light. And when we're waiting in the dark, we think we want to see. But we may not appreciate everything that the light reveals. Light illuminates, but it also exposes. It confronts. We are no more exempt from this reality than the people who saw Jesus in the flesh. So we should expect that God's activity in our lives, that his presence with us and among us, isn't gonna be all rainbows and butterflies all the time. If he's really here, and if we're really paying attention, there's going to be a degree of confrontation. We should expect that he will expose and reveal those thoughts of our hearts that we'd rather keep in darkness so that he can bring them into alignment with him and his kingdom. And friends, this is exactly the kind of crisis that leads to consolation. We can't presume to have one without the other. If you are here this morning and you are looking for a religious experience that's just gonna make you feel good all the time, that's going to affirm you in all of your choices and validate all of your ideas, you're not looking for Christianity. But let me also say this. If you've been taught that consolation is a carrot, that once you learn how to play by all the right Christian rules and think all the right Christian things, that the crisis will end and suddenly life will be easy, that's not Christianity either. Sometimes the crisis of following Jesus, the crisis that comes in proximity to him, has nothing to do with us or our sin. The worst suffering foretold in this passage is reserved for Mary, the one who followed Jesus first and most faithfully of all his disciples. Sometimes the sword that pierces your soul is a direct result of your obedience to God. This is what it means to follow a crucified king. To really receive Christ is to receive all of him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. At least on this side of eternity, these two things belong together. And this is a mystery. We're about to baptize two little boys and I'm talking about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. This is something they're gonna be unpacking for a long time, along with the rest of us. Can I get an amen? This is a mystery. The consolation and the crisis belong together on this side of eternity. And that's where I wanna leave it this morning. Friends, the light that we hold is still on this side of eternity. And so in a way, we are still in the middle of winter. The Lord has come, salvation is secure, we know the end of the story, it's in sight. But in view of all that, we are still waiting. We are still waiting for this season of history to end and for the light to return that will one day warm the whole world forever. Revelation 21 tells us that when that day comes, the city will have no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. We don't know when that day will come, but we do know that the light we have been given will sustain us until we see him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you have come and that you are coming. And I pray that you would help us to experience your presence, to know it, but that even when we doubt it, that we would still know it. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, give us courage to continue asking and seeking and knocking. 
and we pray that you would give us courage to then share what we've received with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.